Hi, my name is Roy. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis chapter 18, <clears throat> verses 1 through 5. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he sat at the entrance of his tent in the day's heat. He looked up and suddenly saw three men standing near him. As soon as he saw them, he ran from his tent entrance to greet them and bowed deeply. He said, Sirs, if you would be so kind, don't just pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought so you may wash your feet and refresh yourselves under the tree. Let me offer you a little bread so you will feel stronger. And after that, you may leave your servant and go on your way since you have visited your servant. They responded, Fine. Do just as you have said. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Katie. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 2, 42 through 47. The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. The Lord added daily to the community those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Bill. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading which is found in Luke 15, 1 through 2. All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning as your kids, as your sons and your daughters, your gathered people. And our prayer is that by your Spirit, you would open our minds to understand the Scriptures, and that you would fill our hearts with love, that we might love you, that we might love one another, and that we might love those who we might otherwise call enemies, so that in and through our lives, you might be glorified and made known to the world. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, welcome. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. And as Evan said, if you're visiting with us, we are absolutely delighted that you're here. I was actually not here last weekend. My wife and kids and I made a trip from Colorado Springs to the booming town of Garner, Iowa, which is a small town in north central Iowa, about 3,000 people where I grew up. Uh, to give you an idea, it's the largest town in the entire county and home to the only stoplight in the county. That's how thriving this kind of place is. Uh, but we went back both to visit my mom and to attend my 20-year high school reunion. 
Yeah. Um, I, growing up in a small town, you end up oftentimes in an environment where you're in school with the same people for a very long time. Uh, so I would say out of our graduating class of 70, probably 55 or 60 of us were in school together from preschool all the way through. Uh, so a lot of folks I had spent a lot of time with but hadn't seen for a very long time. As part of that uh, reunion, they opened up the high school so that we could go and tour the building if we wanted to and see some of the renovations and the things that they've added. And while we were there, I had this, this moment where walking into the high school and turning to go down the freshman hallway, you know where all the freshman lockers are, and immediately I had this moment of panic. <laughs> It was like dread just coming back over me for just a moment as I remembered what it was like to walk down that hallway for the very first time and thinking about just the terror of being a freshman and wondering those moments, looking over my shoulder, hoping I don't do something to offend a junior or senior and find myself in a locker or that moment of going, I hope I don't embarrass myself in such a way that I'm never going to recover. Whether that's that, you know, kind of crazy fear of walking into the wrong room and having everybody look at you, or the more real fear of walking into the wrong restroom and knowing that that's just going to be a problem. But, and it happens. I did it the other day at Jose Maldoon's, but thankfully nobody else was in there. But I remember that distinct feeling of being a freshman, being, a, being new to this place, and having all of those questions about whether or not I was wanted, whether or not I'd be welcomed, whether or not I was going to make it, whether or not this place could ever feel like the previous places that I'd been. That feeling that we get in those moments and the, in places in life where we find ourselves as the stranger in whatever environment we find ourselves in. This is the sixth week after the season of Pentecost, the celebration of the giving of the Spirit and the founding of the church. And we're in the middle of a series that we're calling Grow. It's a series about becoming the church. And we are specifically looking at various things that the church did in response to the coming of the Spirit. What are the practices that both shaped and sustained the church as they began to live out their life as the people of God, partnering with God in His mission in the world? And the whole series has been grounded in that passage that was just read for us from Acts chapter 2. And it says that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. And a sense of awe came over everyone, and God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. And the, very, the passage ends with that statement, the Lord added daily to their community those who were being saved. The passage presents to us this sort of partnership between God's people and God. There's this element of where the people are devoting themselves to things, to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They are doing things sort of in response to who God is and what God's done in order to partner in His work. And yet there's this also this other element where we clearly see what it is that God's doing, that the Lord is doing signs and wonders, that the Lord is adding to their number. And there's this partnership that gets on, put on display as God's inviting his people into his work. So they devoted themselves to certain things, and then they also stood in awe 
to what it is that God was doing in and through their lives. This is actually the first of several summary statements that we encounter in the book of Acts. The book of Acts sort of occasionally drops in these sort of moments where it just sort of summarizes, gives a big picture of what it is that God's doing. And so here are the few other ones. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says that God's word continued to grow and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased significantly. Acts 9, 31, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, the church continued to grow in numbers. Acts 12, 24, God's word continued to grow and increase. Acts 16, 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and every day their numbers flourished. Acts 19, 20, in this way, the Lord's word grew abundantly and strengthened powerfully. See, what the book of Acts does is the book of Acts tells us the story of how the gospel spread and their church grew from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, even to the other ends of the earth. The book ends actually with Paul in Rome, in the capital city of the empire, and we see the gospel spread from this place in Jerusalem throughout the known world at the time. It's a story of this increase, this multiplication of both people and places where God's kingdom is coming to bear in the world. It's an incredible sort of growth. There's a sociologist at Baylor named Rodney Stark who wrote a book called The Triumph of Christianity. And in his book, he very conservatively estimates that in 40 AD, there were a thousand Christians in the Roman Empire. And then by 350 AD, there were 32 million. 1,000 people that kind of, kind of sprung up out of this gathering in Jerusalem to 300 years later, 32 million people confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. This incredible movement and growth and expansion. And the question we have to ask in the middle of it is, how did that happen? <laughs> like, what was it? What was the sort of key to that move? What was the secret sauce? Like, how is it that in a world without the internet, that the gospel can spread to that, those far places in that amount of time? And several scholars have recently argued that really this rapid growth and expansion of the church can be attributed in large ways to the church's distinctive practice of hospitality. That hospitality created the space and sustained this incredible gospel movement. We certainly see in the book of Acts that the church gathered and worshipped and proclaimed the gospel in very public places. We see them gathering in the temple in Jerusalem. We see Paul on Mars Hill and Athens. We see these very sort of public places and expressions. But the church's primary location was in homes. It was in people's homes. It was here that they welcomed people in, invited them to their tables. It was in the context of a home that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. It was in homes. Even if you just take a look at the book of Acts and trace through the number of people's homes that are mentioned, there's the upper room in Jerusalem. 
There's Judas's house on Straight Street in Antioch. There's Simon the Tanner's house and Cornelius the Centurion and Mary the mother of John, Mark and Lydia and Paul and Silas's jailer and Priscilla and Aquila and the list goes on and on and on and on of named people's homes in which the gospel is moving forward. And for many of us, that, that may be true for our story as well that if we think about the places that we've encountered the gospel in the kingdom, chances are for many of us, it's been in the context of a home. For me, I was actually introduced to Christ at the table in the home of Ken and Deb Quinnis. Ken and Deb lived just up the street from us. I was a so- uh, end of my sophomore uh, year in high school. Ken was not only my neighbor, he was my manager at the grocery store where I worked and my ex-girlfriend's dad. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> and in the midst of my life kind of unraveling and not knowing what was going on, in the midst of my parents' separation and an eventual divorce, it was Ken and Deb that welcomed me into their home. And in the midst of a real moment of darkness, Ken opened his Bible to me and began to tell me about Jesus. In the context of a home, the gospel was shared with me. And then when I left Garner and I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma to go to school at Oral Roberts University, I found myself pretty early on being invited into the home of Mark and Casey Steele. I hadn't grown up in a Christian home. I didn't know what it was like to live out marriage in the name of Jesus. I didn't know what it looked like to raise kids in Jesus' name. I had no clue what home could and should look like. And here, Mark and Casey invited me in. They welcomed me into their home and allowed me to sort of be a part of their family. And I found this became the primary context of my discipleship. Week after week, month after month, year after year, over the course of an extended period of time, I moved from being the college kid to Uncle Jason, and I learned what it meant to live out the life of Jesus in the midst of a home. And when it came time for our family to come here, when we were looking and praying that God would open the door for a new opportunity in ministry, and Glenn calls and says, hey, we've got an opportunity for you here at New Life Downtown. Would you consider coming? We would not have been able to move when we did or to be able to move in a way that would make sense for us financially if it hadn't been for Brad and Lisa back opening up their home to my wife and I and our three kids uh, and allowing all of that to come and invade their space. Uh, Their very clean, warm, hospitable space became filled with my kids and all that comes along with that. See, throughout the history of the church, homes have been at many times the epicenter of God's kingdom work. It's been in the context of these very private places that we see the gospel moving forward and people being discipled. And they've been the epicenters of that activity because Christians throughout history have practiced a very distinctive kind of hospitality. And so what is exactly that makes that hospitality distinct? I want to talk with you about four things that I see within the text and the scriptures and the tradition that are distinctive marks of Christian hospitality. And the first one is that Christian hospitality is extended to strangers. Intentionally and continually extended to strangers. Most of the time when we think about hospitality, we think about inviting our friends and families over. 
Hospitality is typically something that we extend to people who are like us or people that we like. Think about having dinner parties for our coworkers or playdates with our kids' friends. Or those moments maybe where we get really radical and we offer an extended stay to our in-laws. Right? That's the extent oftentimes of what we think of hospitality. It's a common kind of welcome. But the early church following the teachings of the Old Testament and following the teachings in the life of Jesus continually offered an uncommon welcome to the stranger in their midst. There was one person who I think captured the heart of this really well. It's an early Christian writer who said this about the heart of Christian hospitality. He said, what is more consistent with the heart of justice than our affording to strangers through kindness the things we freely give to our own relatives through affection? What is more consistent with the heart of justice than giving the kind of treatment we give to our family and friends to strangers? This was actually so remarkable in the early church that the Roman emperor took notice. There's an emperor named Julian who took over after Constantine. Constantine's sort of famous for being the first Roman emperor that sort of opened up to Christianity. And Christianity was no longer a persecuted minority within the context of his reign. But immediately after Constantine, an emperor took over named Julian. And Julian thought the whole Constantine project was a bad idea. And he made it his goal to restore traditional Roman worship to the empire. He wanted to see Zeus and Athena and Apollos have their rightful place in society. And so he wrote this letter to a high priest of the Roman religion in Galatia. And he wrote this article or this letter expressing his deep concern over the decline of worship and the rise of what he called atheism. See, in the ancient world, Jews and Christians were frequently referred to as atheists because they only worshipped one God and denied the existence of all of the others. So he was deeply concerned about this movement, and this is what he said in the letter. He said, why then do we think that this is enough? Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism. Their benevolence to strangers has done the most to increase atheism. I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues. And what's fascinating about the letter is that he goes on to instruct the bishop to set up a publicly funded charity to care for people so that they won't have to rely on Christians. He said, let's start this government project so that people will stop turning to Jesus and to his people for care. He goes on in this letter and he says this. It's absolutely fascinating comment. He says, for it is disgraceful that no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, that's another way of referring to Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that, we, that our people lack aid from us, and they find it in the church. See, the Roman emperor, the most powerful person on the planet at that time, 
recognized that it was the church's kindness to strangers, their care for those who are not their own, their hospitality that fueled the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. And it was such a big deal that it actually posed a threat to the traditional religion of the empire, that it was hospitality that was causing people to turn to Jesus and away from Zeus. How incredible is that? And what an opportunity we have to participate in the same kind of work. See, we live in an incredibly transient city and an incredibly transient time. Or if we think about the number of people that we meet in the midst of the course of our daily lives, many of them could in some way be classified as strangers. They're either new to the city because they've been moved here for, they moved here with the military, they moved here with a new, for a new job, they may have moved here just for the view um, because it was better than anywhere else that they had lived before, they may have moved here or are moving here this fall to attend college, they may be part of the largest movement of refugees in the history of the world. They're coming to our city in all sorts of various ways, and that they present us with bountiful opportunities to follow in the way of Jesus and to be the people of God who extend welcome to strangers in our midst. Who are those people in our lives? And are we the kind of people who are willing to open our doors to them and invite them in to share a meal and perhaps even share the gospel that they might come to know Jesus? There's something deeply beautiful and good about this kind of hospitality. But there's also something inside of us that when we hear about it, recognizes, yeah, that's a little dangerous (laughs) and risky and unpredictable. Sometimes when we start talking in these ways about opening our homes to strangers, we find ourselves flooded with a series of fears. For many of us, it begins with just the idea in our culture about the fear and danger of strangers. I think for me personally, I'm still dealing with the trauma I experienced in reading the Bernstein Bears when they learned about strangers. It was a terrifying book. (laughs) I mean, normally they're just playing baseball, but all of a sudden something happened and you're like, what is this? There's that stranger danger kind of response that comes up inside of us. Or for other of us, we start being worried about possibly being taken advantage of or Maybe we even feel a sense of inadequacy. Who am I to be able to offer people in? And I'm not sure people really want to see this part of my life or my children. We worry about not having enough, either time or resources to share with others. We get afraid about being crushed by the demands in the midst of everything else going on in our lives. It's certainly true that there is a reality about Christian hospitality that must be accompanied by wisdom, discernment, and humility. There's a practice of being wise in the midst of extending welcome, of being prudent, of recognizing we can meet people in public places and kind of slowly move them to the table. Some prudence that goes into that for sure. There's a discernment, a sensitivity to the Spirit saying, okay, Jesus, what are you doing in the midst of this? And there is humility, recognizing that we have to be aware of our own limitations, that we have so much space, so much time, and we don't have the ability to welcome 
all. There's a beautiful quote from Edith Schaefer who once said this, uh, that this idea that because there are more people than we have time or strength to see personally and care for, it is imperative to remember that it is not sinful to be finite or limited. It's not sinful to have our limitations. We have to be aware of them. But it is sinful to allow our fears and our finiteness to become a justification for inaction, to become a justification for being inhospitable people. And the gospel calls us to be welcoming. Christine Pohl in her beautiful book called Making Room said, our hospitality cannot respond to every need, but it can meet some needs and it can be a living, a living demonstration of what is possible when people care. And that only expands when it's an entire community living a life of welcome. The second distinctive feature of Christian hospitality is that Christian hospitality is unapologetically uncalculating. In the Greco-Roman world, there's a lot of conversation about who is the worthy guest. And the worthy guest is often defined as the one who can repay. Hospitality became connected with reciprocity and social advancement. Benefits were clearly calculated as well as were costs. If I invite this person, this will be the benefit to me. They will be able to invite me over and then I might, might, might meet these people and my social standing might begin to rise. If I invite this person, it may have these costs. So no welcome is extended Benefits and costs were calculated. But Jesus says this. He says, when you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return, and that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. Instead, you will be repaid when the just are resurrected. So Christian hospitality has always emphasized welcoming those who are unable to pay it back. The poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the stranger, the alien, the sick, and the dying. They've always been the focus of distinctively Christian hospitality. Because in the ancient world, those people were the most vulnerable. They were disconnected from their families and they were socially powerless. They were denied economic opportunity. They were refused justice. And many times they were sent outside and isolated from community and people. So they were particularly vulnerable to homelessness, to hunger, to exploitation and abuse. Their hope in the world is that someone would welcome them in protect them, and provide for them in this system where they had no hope. And I don't think that much has changed. That those groups are still some of the most marginalized and vulnerable in our society. The poor, the orphan, the widow, the refugee, the mentally or terminally ill are still among the most isolated people on the planet. And they often present us with the clearest opportunity to open our homes and our hearts and our hands to offer this kind of no-strings-attached 
Christian hospitality to say, come, we welcome you in. It's one of the things I am most proud about, about being a part of New Life Downtown, is the number of stories I hear from those of us who are involved in things like Royal Family Kids Camp and reaching out to those in orphanages and foster care systems in our city, or those who are involved at Springs Rescue Mission and looking to prepare a table and invite our homeless friends in and find ways to help give them dignity and respect and welcome them to significant places, or the ways that we've been involved with Lutheran Family Services and engaged in refugees coming to our city and saying, you are welcome here. Or for those of you who have gone even to the place of being foster care parents or adoptive parents, for all of those involved in that, thank you for putting Jesus on display and calling and encouraging the rest of us to do the same, to offer an uncalculated hospitality to the most needy in our midst. Third thing about Christian hospitality is that it encourages, constantly encourages mutuality. Just because a guest is not able to fully pay or to fully repay the hospitality that's been given to him, to them, does not mean that they have nothing to offer. See, in any sort of context of hospitality, there are always power dynamics at play. There is clearly a host and there's clearly a guest. And typically in those situations, the host has the power and the guest has little to none. And oftentimes in the context of hospitality, we want to maintain those distinctions in order to maintain our own sense of safety and control. But in Christian hospitality, we recognize that there is a mutuality that must exist. It encourages mutual giving and receiving. Not equal, not even mandatory, but mutual. Christian hosts recognize that all people are made in the image of God. And so our guests are not only worthy of dignity and respect and care, but they are actually capable of bringing something to the divine into our world. They come with the capacity to bear God's image into a situation. So in Christian hospitality, lines are blurred, roles are fluid, and power is flattened. And this is exactly what happened anytime Jesus got invited over to anybody's house. <laughs> right? If you look at the life of Jesus, look at any situation where he's gathered around a meal, we find that these roles of guest and host are constantly being changed and being tossed and being reconfigured. Jesus is often a host who receives from his guests. And he is often a guest who gives abundantly to his hosts. The roles are fluid. And actually, in any sort of long-term hospitality, they have to be. Hospitality isn't sustainable without guests becoming hosts and hosts receiving from their guests. Without mutuality, it's not sustainable in the long term. So if we find ourselves as hosts, then we should create opportunities for our guests to bring their gifts and allow ourselves to receive from them with gratitude, whatever it is that they bring to the table. And if we find ourselves as guests, then we should volunteer what we can, our time, our expertise, our encouragement to enrich and help our hosts sustain the welcome that they are given to us. 
This is not only true in our homes, but it's also true in our churches, right? If we remain as guests, we'll never feel at home. The hospitality is a welcome into participation. And so the best way to move from guest to host is actually to join in the serving. So when we serve, particularly in the context of the church, the the church stops being a place we attend and becomes a family we belong to. So that contest of saying, I am moving from guest to co-host. It's a critical component. But all of this... This idea that Christian hospitality is extended to strangers, that Christian hospitality is uncalculating, that Christian hospitality seeks mutuality is all because Christian hospitality witnesses to the hospitality of God. It actually in some ways reenacts the gospel. It puts God and his story on display in a way that makes it really clear for people to understand who God is and what he's like. We welcome strangers and even enemies because while we were strangers, people outside of God's covenant community, while we were God's enemies, while we were set against God's kingdom, he invited us in through Jesus. He gave his life for us, invited us not only to come and have a seat at his table, but to actually be a part of the family, to be the sons and daughters of the Most High God. He welcomes strangers and enemies like us into his family and then says, hey, go and continue that welcome. We welcome strangers because when we were strangers, God welcomed us. And our hospitality is uncalculating. We extend welcome to those who are unable to pay it back because this is exactly what God's hospitality is like. It is uncalculating and incredibly generous. We will never be able to reciprocate God's generosity in our lives. All we can do is try to put it on display for others. Say, our God is a generous God who graciously and generously welcomed us in when there's nothing that we could do to fully repay it back. And so we're going to put that on display so that others might see the God in heaven. And our hospitality encourages mutuality because we discover in the midst of the gospel that God is both the great host and the great guest. He is the great host who created this entire place that we might uh, be his people and that he could be his God. He could be our God, inviting us and welcoming us and fellowshipping with us in his space. He's the great host who invites us to participate in the divine love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's the great host who invites us every week to come and feast at his table. He's the great host that when we look to the end of time, we see us feasting together at his heavenly banquet. He is the great host, but he's also the great guest. He's the God who appeared to Abraham and Sarah as three strangers walked up to their tents and appeared to them by the oaks of Mamre. He's the great guest who took on flesh and blood and became a fellow creature in his creation and came to us in Jesus. 
And he is the great guest that continues to come to us and those who are hungry and sick and naked and estranged and in prison. He said to his disciples in Matthew 25, I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And those he was talking to responded and said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. When did we ever do any of those things to you? And Jesus said, I assure you that when you have done it for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. We welcome because Jesus welcomed us. And because Jesus is actually the one standing at the door knocking and inviting himself into our lives. We welcome because we recognize that we have been brought into the divine embrace. And that every stranger who comes to us is a divine opportunity to welcome Jesus into our lives. And to see what it is that he might have to say. Amen.